what a pleasure to be in person. Yeah, it is yeah, really a is. great. Oh. It's delightful because the last time we failed rather miserably to get you come swimming in the ponds. Do you remember? Yeah. But we went the first time, which was fabulous. You did, and you ran up. This is bizarre. They ran for like an hour, jumped in the water for about 30 seconds, and then had 30 a cup of tea. seconds? We were in there for a full 20 minutes. <laughs> no, you were not. That was a long one for minutes. us. But five, even five yeah, was five yeah. minutes was long for us. I think somewhere us. between two and five. You guys swim for more than two and five minutes. Tomorrow we're going to swim for more than that. In a wetsuit. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> What's the temperature now? Right now, 16 degrees. This is sea swimming. So, yeah, about 16 degrees. That's fine. Oh, yeah. it's. it's that's Friends. about what the ponds are. The ponds are about yeah, nice. 17, 17 yeah, and a half. Nice. When we were there, it was about 21 degrees, yeah, so it was, it was very warm. It was too yeah. warm. Getting yeah. algae. All yeah, that green yeah, stuff. Yeah, Not what you want. Yeah. Well, um, Spencer, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Genuinely, it is. This has been the highlight of the summer. Forget the silly swim. Forget <laughs> everything else. This is, this is just so exciting. Did you exciting. do the swim? Did you swim up to, what was the, the, the detective lady's house? What was the, uh, No, no, Christie. it wasn't that, that, that wasn't was, it? That was, that was the, that was the, Phantom the ten k, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I didn't do that. I didn't, I didn't do the dart because I couldn't do it. I can't remember why, but I did do the Silly Island sixteen k swim with a friend. Sixteen k, jeez. You do it, you do it in five or six swims, and you sort of schlep between the different bits, and you start at six thirty as the sun is rising, and then you put your bags on a boat, and they take your bags to the next place, and you swim for a couple of kilometers, and then you swim again put your bags on another boat and then they sort of, you know, walk you around. Wow. And it's, it's, it's an amazing, so it's, it's an amazing adventure. experience. It is. And they're just the most amazing group of people in swimmers. It is the best organized event wow. with the most lovely people organizing What's it. What's it called? It's, I think it's just called the Silly Island Swim. It's been going for 10 years. You can either do it in two days or you can do it on one day. I've realized the importance of, at least as I get old, the importance of having that little bit of adventure and albeit contrived adventure. It's fabulous. It is phenomenal to feel that you've done it. Mm. And it's a phenomenal feeling of community. And they organized it so well. I, I think it's that feeling of solidarity that together you're enduring this thing together. So you've got a collective enemy, which therefore fuses you together and creates camaraderie and bondship. And yes, you know, and I think candidly, if you're not with other people, you probably wouldn't do it all. Like, I mean, definitely. No way would uh, you do towards it. Towards the end of the last no, Probably swim, it would be definitively would not do yeah. it. There was definitely a bit when I got into an argument with some uh, seaweed and some kelp. I just swam the wrong way because I wasn't paying the attention. I just got myself in this kelp forest. And I just thought I've had enough. I'm going to get out. And then I suddenly realized I can't because everyone else is still swimming. So I just kept going. To keep going. And it was, going. but it, it, it's good to, and it's a great way of just sort of running around the world. So I'm really looking forward to tomorrow morning swim too. Okay, that nice. is going to be it's, just think, think awesome. Dip. <laughs> yeah, think dip. Yeah, dip. Just, just to redefine like expectations. <laughs> dip is probably a better definition of what so we do. So in all of the other podcasts that you were doing, you had all this great stuff about like, you know, how wonderful it is to be in the sea. And even though it's okay to do a bit of swimming in Hampstead, it just isn't the same thing. So I think we've got to do a proper swim just to sort of get <laughs> <laughs> I'll join you. I'll join you. Because we did our first proper swim this year where we swam from Bray to Greystones, which was seven kilometres. Which is an amazing swim because you had a lot of current too. Yeah, and you had a yeah. boat and everything else. Yeah, we had two boats and two kayaks. Yeah, that's there the we stuff. Go. That's Look the stuff. That. Well, we'll get you over to do some more. I think we should oh, do yes, some more, yeah. more, 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 more swimming. And well, on the topic of swimming, so swimming is obviously what united us, but flavor and taste is what I really want to camp out in today because. Our, our minds, our experience, having worked in the food industry for 20 years and being like, you know, food has been our life for 20 years. We didn't really know the distinction between flavour and taste till we w met you one morning in Hampstead for a rye bread sandwich and a swim 
at and sunrise. Some chocolate. And some chocolate. And some chocolate. At 8 a.m. on a Monday morning. It was extraordinary. And basically, you were recognised as superstars there because you met all these friends who you already knew and they were all sort of like doing double takes. And you were wearing matching boxer shorts, which was <laughs> that, really that was, impressive. That was really weird because we both have about, I have about 25 pairs of jocks. I don't know. I have you at have. least 30, David. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> and just randomly were wearing the same pairs of jocks. It was very impressive. The lifeguards were just super in awe of, of, of your performance. <laughs> our uniformity, our uniformity. Uh, and your swimming, of and course. And calamity. And your swimming, yeah. No, no, but we did. We just we talked about taste and flavour and texture. and But I think you guys, you are all about flavour. I mean, that's what you do. I like, mean, you, so for anyone listening that's new to this, so if you were to differentiate taste and flavour, how, how do you separate them? So I think the simple and way why to would about, you? Okay, so two different questions. So the simple way to think about taste is it's sweet, sour, salty, bitter, umami. It's a series of receptors that you have in your mouth, largely in your tongue, but also in your throat and all the way down to your gut and beyond. And we all pretty much know what they are. So if you have something sweet, you know that it's sweet. If you have something sour, you know that it's sour. If you have something bitter, you often want to spit it out. Flavor is completely different. Flavor is basically what you get from your sense of smell, and it's an aroma. And basically, humans are pretty unique in the sense that we can detect aromas, not just by sniffing something, but also when we put something in our mouth, it releases the volatiles and the aromas. And we basically have what we call retronasal olfaction, and which is a fancy way of saying it releases the aromas and we get this amazing sense of flavor. And you guys are all really all about flavor because, you know, we were just up at the farm. We were just having all these amazing tomatoes, all these amazing other vegetables. That amazing lunch that you gave me, that was all about flavor. It wasn't, you know, like loads of sugar, salt and fat all combined together. It's about releasing that. And you can only do that by working with nature. So, 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 so is flavour almost like, you know, and you gave an example over lunch, you were saying that um, certain types of like ferments, the reason why we like acidic, we've been trained over millions of years, like acidic is a, is a taste which we like is because it's high in potassium and other different minerals. And this is why we're drawn towards these different things. So is flavour a representation of nutrients as well, whereas taste is receptors in our tongue? So taste is receptors in our tongue and we basically have these taste receptors almost as a means of survival. So here's a weird one for you. You actually I love have, weird ones. Great. This is a weird one. We all have taste receptors in our ears for sourness. Wow. Now, we don't really eat with our ears very much. But the theory is, is that we've got this taste receptor for sourness in our ears because we kept it from being fishes. And sourness is basically acidity. And so if you're a fish and you shouldn't be swimming somewhere, that's where you detect it from. So there are all these strange places where we have these protein receptors, these taste receptors, which can react to different chemicals and give us that. So bitterness is generally meaning may not be quite ready to eat, maybe, you know, warning you off it. Sweetness is bitterness could be like you take a, an unripe gooseberry, for example, and it's really pucker. Like it draws all the moisture out of the mat and you're like... I don't know if you can relate to that, but yeah, that's do. pucker, that's bitter, that's astringent. That's astringency too. Yeah, astringency versus bitter. Bitterness. But they're, they're they, they generally go together. Yeah. They yeah. generally go together, except in Japan where you've got the khaki. But generally bitterness and astringency do. But bitterness is, you know, lots of, you know, the, 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 the face that somebody puts on bitterness, it's that sort of... You know, you, yeah, you almost want to get rid of it, don't you? And, 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 and then sort of, you know, the argument for umami, which is that thing you get when you cook vegetables or when you cook meat is that it's basically a way of sort of saying that this food is highly dense in sort of various nutrients like potassium and nitrogen and all that sort of stuff. So there is this sort of theory, which is that all of our taste buds are there to basically help us figure out what we should be eating. Whereas flavor is what we get delight in. And it's a way of sort of savoring, I think. 
But I think flavor is our great defense against ultra processed foods and all the baddies in food and all the other stuff that we get. Because flavor typically, flavor is the subtlety. Flavor is the one that one has to kind of stop and almost like ponder and consider. It's less like, you know, you eat something salty, that's salty. Whereas to get the subtle aromas, they have to travel from your yep. tongue up your, the back of your nose or your retronasal Absolutely. pathway up to your olfactory glands or your, yeah, your, your taste receptors senses, in your nose. Yeah. Yeah. And, your flavor receptors as opposed to your taste receptors. Yeah, no, this be your taste, don't they? No, t- think tongue taste. Tongue taste. Tongue taste. Tongue taste. Yeah. Flavor is olfactory, no. so your sense yes, of smell. No. And you're right, it does. So if you basically, when we do the tasting tonight with the team, what we're going to discover is that, you know, everybody can taste sweetness and sourness and bitterness incredibly quickly. Right? Li- sweetness is literally the fastest thing that hits your brain, faster than any sort of drug, nicotine or anything else. It's literally, you know, three-fiftieths of a second. Whereas you're right, flavor, you've got to let the chocolate melt, for example, and it takes three to five seconds minimum for it to start to develop. And then the wonderful thing about flavor is you go on this journey. So you get all these different flavors coming through. So like when you have one of your tomatoes, it's just amazing because you sort of start with a bit of taste, a bit of texture, and then you sort of get all these different aromas. And it just it's it's like going on a journey. It's like having a good conversation. You know, you're sort of saying hello to the tomato and what's going to happen. And you're, you're getting to, you know, be quite intimate with it. It's a wave. You talk about like flavor hits your taste. Flavor hits you as a wave. Yeah, I think I think that is right. I think one of the, I think that, it's really good to have a vocab around flavor so you can articulate it. So I think flavor wheels are really useful. But the only thing I think which is problematic with them, like there's two problems with them. One of them is that they don't, they're, they're good for helping you articulate it so you can maybe remember it and appreciate it a bit more. But the problem is they don't give you this idea of a journey, which is what you should get with great food. Like, you know, the lunch you just gave me, that was amazing because it was all these different flavors, but they all developed in different ways. Like the lovely, the bean curry, which was just fantastic. Or the potatoes, they were amazing how they sort of started as being sort of quite caramelly. And then you sort of get all these nutty notes, but you just get these completely different flavor sensations as you go through it. Um, and I think that the problem with the flavor wheel is it tends to just get you to focus on one thing, which isn't necessarily what you want to be doing. You want to be looking more for the journey. And a flavor wheel for anyone listening is those, it's like a circle with various different pies on it, which has different colors and different kind of, you know, descriptions yeah. of what things might taste. And often like it's easy to describe a flavor via visual mechanism, like certainly in coffee and chocolate, yeah. there'll be a flavor wheel and probably is in wine and these other things. Cause we don't like you, and we've only learned this from you. Most people don't have the the, the, vocab. the vocab to describe flavor. Like we can always say sweet. Oh, that's a very sweet bar of chocolate. Oh, it's a bit bitter. I don't really like it. Oh, it's very acidic or whatever. People can often describe these things, but flavor is a different. Yeah. And it's really interesting. Vocabulary. If you don't have the vocab, it's really problematic. We were chatting about this before. So there's this in- intriguing concept called verbal overshadowing, Ooh. which is a fancy way of basically saying that if you ask somebody who's just been robbed or been mugged or anything to r- describe the criminal after the crime, they are actually less likely later to be able to identify the criminal in a police lineup than if you not ask them to describe it. And the same thing is true when basically people have tried with wine to get people to describe the wine that they've just tried. They are less likely later to be able to pick it out blind from a series of other wines. And the hypothesis here is that if you don't have the vocab and you sort of you know, use the wrong words or use words which you're not familiar with and you don't associate. So not the wrong words, but just words that you can remember and associate. You'll actually confuse yourself more and not be able to pick it out as well as if you'd said nothing. But if you train people, just as you train people with different colors and other stuff, once you've learned to recognize it and you write it down, you can easily remember it. So it's a question of just developing that skill with those flavors. And once you've got it as well, it also makes you step back 
and think a little bit more and savor it a bit more. And in fact, I think that's actually, I mean, you know, one of the reasons why the, these flavor wheels were invented, they came, I think they come out of University College Davis. So some, you know, basically up Sacramento, um, sort of California back in the 1960s. And they were developed to help people appreciate what good wine is about. Because, you know, you all can sort of tell the difference, but between a good wine and a, you know, not necessarily as sophisticated a wine, but it helps to have the vocab because that helps you appreciate it a bit more and you can appreciate and understand it a bit more. And that'll sort of help you go on the journey. And once you do that, you can savor it a bit more and you'll get more out of it. And I think that leads into like one of your favorite or an expression that I love of yours is like savor, don't scoff. And you see that as a wonderful gateway to kind of addressing greater societal issues. And I think that's an incredible motto for life. Yeah, I, I do think that learning to savor and take your time is incredibly important. And I think that one of the great tragedies of food and civilization broadly as a whole is that we scoff so much now. And by scoff, I mean, eat fast without thinking about it and just sort of, you know, pile it in. And it's immediate gratification rather than taking pleasure in the small things and being mindful about it. And I think it dates back to there's a guy who I just don't think gets enough, and I'm not sure the word credit is necessarily due, but this extraordinary, he's called a psychophysicist, which is a wonderful description of a term, called Moskowitz, who we talked about the bliss point quite a lot. But basically- but human, what, what is the bliss point? Just Sugar, salt, and fat, and a bit of umami and a bit of texture. It's basically, you know, if you, it's, it's, it's the Pringle effect or the Dorito effect. So what do you want to eat after you've had one Pringle? Another one. That's it. So, so, so the, the bliss point, I understand it, is it's this- Food manufacturers have come up with this perfect balance of fat, salt, sweet, and sugar. And they've put it together, and this is called the bliss point that m makes food addictive. And that you consume yeah. it, and you're hit with such a degree of bliss that you're like, I want another one. So much dopamine. Yeah, such yeah, dopamine. It's, and it, you also crave it, I think, to an extent. Mm. And I think that's, the, the, you know, that's what makes it sort of addictive. I mean, you can, you can, you can, you won't necessarily get pleasure out of it, but you will just crave it and you'll want more of it. And I think that's where it gets really dangerous. And it, and it was developed initially, basically to try and get the US Army to eat more of their rations by this guy, Moskowitz. And it's an extraordinary invention, but it's basically the underpinnings of junk food. Because, mm. you know, who cares about flavor and good quality ingredients if you can just get people to scoff with sugar, salt and fat? And they just scoff because it's inherently like this dopamine release. They're just like, I want more of it. It just feels so good. Yeah, I think it's also that you... There, I think there is a craving to it as well. But yeah, I think you're right. I think that is what it is. And ironically, of course, you know, everybody sort of dates this back to the 1950s. But sadly, chocolate arguably was one of the first true bliss point foods. Milk chocolate in particular, which we just learned to scoff. Now, you can savour milk chocolate too, and you should. And we'll have some vegan milk chocolate later, which we'll do that with. But, you know, I think part of the downside for chocolate is that chocolate's got more complexity and more flavour than just about anything else on the planet. And yet we scoff it and we scoff it because it's a really good vector, really good vehicle for adding sugar, salt and fat and a bit of texture to, which wow. is where I think, but I think, you know, going back to it, we want to savor food and we want to savor the opportunity to share and experience food. We've become Instant Pot ambassadors, amazing kitchen appliance that's going to make it easier for you to cook healthy, save money and save time. It literally rethink the way you cook. You know, you literally pop a hollowed ingredients in it and then you've got hands off cooking. Like I'll put a hollowed ingredients in and then I can go do what I want and come back in 30 or 50 minutes later and the dinner's cooked. It's a great way. Many people are kind of afraid of a pressure cooker, but this is a new 
kind of advanced. It takes away the worry from pressure cooking. Because you're cooking in one pot, you literally only have one pot to clean up. And it's a beautiful way to have six portion capacity. So it's easy to cook for the family. Yeah, it's so simple to use, even for a novice home cook. I genuinely use it all the time. I make oat groats in the morning. I make dals, I make chilies, I make curries. And literally when I'm making the girls lunch boxes, I'll pop a whole lot of ingredients in and schedule it to come on for when I come home and dinner's ready. Like it's, it's a no brainer. We're working with them. We've They've given an exclusive discount. Where do people find out details? They'll find out details on the show notes for this episode. It's called the Instant Pot Duo Plus Whisper Quiet. It's their latest model. It's amazing. I use it genuinely. I use it all the time. I'm not joking. Link in our show notes. Time to pay the bills now. Um, As we said, this podcast is sponsored by Vivo Barefoot Shoes. They're really, they're the only shoes we've been wearing for six years. And really, we wouldn't take someone as a sponsor unless we really believe in them. And this is a company and these are shoes that we've seen it in ourselves. Our feet have become more natural. They're stronger. They're wider. I can isolate this, this kind of movement called toga, which sounds funny and sounds stupid, but it's where you can isolate your toes and move them kind of Individually. Individually. And through wearing shoes, at least there's even research from Vivo at universities that your feet muscles will typically improve by 60% within a number of weeks of just wearing barefoot within shoes. Within 100 days, I think it is. Days, so, and even think about it logically that in a house, the foundation or the base of the house is the really the, the most important bit which the structure sits on. And the same way we kind of, we just wear shoes without thinking about it, yet our feet are the foundation. And when you've got them in shoes that actually encourage the natural kind of movements within your feet it enhances every aspect of your anatomy yeah so uh, if anyone does want to try them out uh, Vivo Barefoot are offering a 15% off with the code HAPPYPAIR15 and you have nothing to worry about they're offering a 100 day return policy so if you don't like your Vivo Barefoot you can return them free of charge yeah so check them out VivoBarefoot.com full range of shoes for all the family from formal to casual to kids um, and everything in between so 15% off HAPPYPAIR15 before we run into chocolate, I'd love to talk, where, where does texture fit in terms of flavour and taste? Because I'd, almost to me, it seems like it's an addition. It's like, a, you know, you've got taste, which is on your tongue, and it's those, the five basic tastes. Flavour is the olfactory glands, and texture. So texture is another sort of sense that we all have. And there are sort of lots of places where we're really, really good at being able to detect texture. The two which are probably the most um, sensitive are actually your fingers and your mouth. So if you sort of prick somebody on the back on their back, it's very difficult for them to be able to identify exactly where it is on their back that you're actually, you know, putting a pin in. Whereas if you do it on your tongue or if you do it on your, your fingers, you know exactly where it is. And we've got that many more receptors there, touch receptors. So texture in a way is a way of understanding the texture of a food. And again, where chocolate's so fascinating is, is that you can grind chocolate down to a level at which technically we aren't able to distinguish it as being a solid and we think it's a liquid. So down below about 15 microns. Um, and texture really adds to the experience. So the crunch really adds to it. Because the other great thing that Moskowitz works out is in fancy terms, it's called sensory specific satiety. In simple terms, it's basically, you know, when you go to an ice cream store, they will always try and get you to have like three or four different scoops of different styles. That's because you get bored if you just had one. But if you add a bit of different textures to it, or if you add a bit of different flavors to it, or even different tastes, that will keep you interested. So I think texture plays a role there. But texture definitely, you know, is incredibly important to how you enjoy and appreciate and get into food. And then there's one more, which is chemesthesis. So beforehand, you basically you have this lovely mustard, um, mustard green, mustard which we had greens, in the farm, yeah, yeah, which which just was just amazing. But that sort of kicks off 
this sort of trigeminal sensation of, of a bit of spiciness. Um, What's trigeminal? I mean, that's a great that's word. A, it's a great, it's a, this, this nerve which sort of runs down from your eye down to your mouth. It's also why um, when you have an onion, it makes you cry a bit because that's part of your trigeminal nerve. And what you were talking about, you know, this puckering sensation, Yeah, yeah. that's again, chemesthesis. That's not trigeminal. But basically when you put something in your mouth, which causes your saliva to stop being slippery and it makes you, your, your mouth pucker, tannins, for example, so like, you know, red wine or a coffee or black coffee or something like that, or dark chocolate. That is, again, another element of the fun of enjoying lots of great foods. And, you know, again, all your vegetables have just got tons of all these different experiences. And even similarly, during the week, uh, we were doing a chili, a lacto chili so sauce. We were, do we were And we were chopping wow. up loads of chilies and like um, Lucy's from a man and she's well able to like take a chili and eat a chili and not kind of uh, get hiccups. Whereas me being from Ireland, I take a little small, little, we were taking a Thai chili and I took a bite of it and was like, oh my God. And when I sat with it, it was like, I just think I'm just not accustomed to sitting with this slightly discomfortable, discomfortable feeling. But underneath it, the taste was quite nice. But it, there's almost like this discomfort or lack of awareness of what this feeling is. You know that way? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it, it, it's a habit thing. I mean, the first time, you know, you try something very spicy, it is going to be quite strange. It's interesting though, because the other one that you get through the trigeminal nerve is menthol and cooling. Oh, love that. Mm. And most people really like that one, but spiciness they have more of a challenge with. And, and these are learn so what I'm understanding, like taste, as you said, most people can recognize. They can recognize salt, sweet, bitter and acidic. And, and umami is one, you know, it was only recognized in the 1910s. late 80s. Yeah, it was finally proven in the late 1980s. 1980, yeah, proven and it was classified as this is another flavor profile or whatnot. Taste, taste, it's another oh, taste. taste. Another taste profile. Whereas flavor is a skill which we need to develop and we need I, to I, develop, like we can probably... We can possibly identify things, but we can't verbalize it. Yeah, and we don't I think necessarily it's, it's the, the articulation. I think we just don't have a vocab for it. It's not like color where we've got the Pantone system. You know, we can all sort of agree these are, you know, yellow or blue or black or whatever like that. We've all got the same vocab. And we, we sort of innately have that for um, tastes. I don't think we've got it for flavor in the same uh, way. And in flavor, like what we're referring to now is when you read, oh, the flavor profiles of this wine is, oh, it's a touch of gooseberry and a bit of early morning dew yeah. and a bit of pine and oh my God, it's got a bit of musty uh, forest floor and like, you know, the, these, and there's so much kind of, you know, grand, I don't know, it seems highfalutin. I think it's very, I think it's... It, poetic in a sense. It is poetic. It's also it, quite sort of scary. Yeah. And it gets, and I also think that there's an element to it, which is that Unlike colors where, unless you're colorblind, everybody can agree on the colors because we all see it in the same way. The weird thing about flavor is that not everybody's going to get the same flavors. So what I mean by that is that the way that flavor is released is through lots of different mechanics. But when you put, let's take chocolate. If you put a piece of chocolate in your mouth, the initial flavors are released by the heat of your mouth, releasing those aromas. But then later, what will actually happen is that you've got bacteria and different sort of yeasts in your mouth and everybody's saliva is different. And so that will also release different, what are called bonded volatiles. And the best example is back to the gooseberries is that lots of people when they drink um, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc think that many of them taste of gooseberries. They have the flavor profile of gooseberries, but that's only because they've got a specific bacteria in their mouth, which reacts with the thiol in that New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc to release the impression of gooseberries. And another 20% of people just think it tastes a little bit different and not very nice. And so that's an example. I think that's an example of why you shouldn't ever 
listen to somebody who says this is what you must be tasting in this because it's just not going to work like that you know this is what the flavors are it just doesn't work like that so everybody's it's not different of a flavor is very subjective yeah it's very personal a bit like art Yes, it, it's what you like. It's a bit like music. You know, some people like certain forms of music. Some people like other forms of music. But it is very, very much dependent on how the flavor is released. And so most people will initially, when they try a bar of chocolate, actually get the same flavors. But later as it goes on, you may well get radically different impressions. And they're both right. It's just that one person doesn't have the same bacteria in their mouth as others, so they can't release the flavor in the same way. Wow. So can we talk about chocolate? Chocolate is a Chocolates. dear love of mine, a huge friend. Even over here, there's a winnower, there's a grinder got it all. there. Uh, there's got a it all. conch somewhere in there. In the and corner. there were some beans last time we were yeah, here. Beans, yeah, there's beans. Great Guatemalan chocolate oh, there from the Ketchi. There you are. Look at that. I had the, a bar the other day of Guatemalan. I was thinking of you. Well, yeah. well, you've got some of We've got to get you to start making and letting everyone else try these amazing chocolates. Because yeah. it's the home of, it's basically that those beans are made by the descendants of the very first people we know who brought chocolate to Europe back in 1544. 1544, that's the start of it. So chocolate comes from the cacao pod or the fruit of, of which is the cacao pod yep. and if you've never tried it's quite like a lychee the fruit the, the, is quite the, like the a pulp, lychee the pulp, the pulp. Yeah, yeah the pulp which is the fruit which is you're absolutely right yeah. that is the fruit and the chocolate will come from the bean which is then fermented which yep. is harvested and it's fermented in its pulp typically in a batch isn't it and then it'll be dried yep, and absolutely. then it will be then it'll be get the moisture content below 5% and then it'll be typically shipped and stored before it's processed Roasted and yeah, exactly to that process. But yeah. I wonder if we could talk about chocolate because it's a dear love of mine and it's something that many people think chocolate is just chocolate. But chocolate is remarkably broad, diverse. It's mm. It has this huge sophistication and variety of flavour to it that many people don't know. Similar to that of red wine or craft coffee or craft gin or IPA beer, etc. And chocolate is just wonderful. It is. It's amazing. And it, it's a delight for everybody. You know, it's, it's extraordinary. I think it's like you know, 25% of people in the UK eat chocolate every day, 75% every three or four days. We spend more on it than we do on books or music. More on chocolate than books or music? Yeah. Wow. And in America, it's the same thing too. And it's just something which we, everybody has, but it's, it's relatively recent. So we've only been eating chocolate for less than a couple of hundred years. We drank it before then, but it does, as you said, it comes from South America. Actually, I've got a question for you now, because you're yeah. absolutely right. Your description was fantastic about, you know, the fruit is this pulp. And then you actually, bizarrely, it's one of the very, very few fruits where we eat the seeds. And yeah. I'm always trying to find other fruits where we focus on the seeds as Pomegranate. opposed to the Chocolate. Pomegranate. Or uh, coffee. But, uh, we, coffee is the seeds. Coffee, coffee is, is the, the seeds. seeds. That's yeah. definitely true. Which, Both fermented foods. Which other, where else though do we eat the seeds? Passion fruit is the same. Passion fruit, we eat the seeds. Yeah. yeah. Quinoa is the seeds. Quinoa is the seeds. Okay, so you've yeah. got a bunch of... Like, yeah, and then, uh, then obviously like cereals is the seed, you know. Yeah. Technically, okay. we call it a grain, but it's the seed yeah, within but it's the, the grain. It's it's fruit, like it is the fruit of the plant. Yeah, because one, of the, the, one of the things which I think is technically weird about chocolate is that, you know, when you drink a wine, you can know which grape variety it comes from. So one of the things which gives rise to, linking this back to what you're saying, one of the things which gives rise to different flavors in chocolate is just as, you know, like different apples taste different or different wines taste different because they've got different grapes in them. Different, there are different cacao varietals. But what's difficult is that whereas on an apple tree, all the apples which grow off it, well, in most cases, they're going to be the same apples. They're going to have the same flavor and the same taste profile. With chocolate, that's not the same because it's basically the seed. So it's the result of the cross-pollination, which is, you know, between, it, it, you know, if you plant an 
apple seed, you don't get the same fruit as if you took that apple off a tree. And the same thing is true of cacao. And I'm always intrigued to understand more about other fruits which work in the same way. So it constantly changes each kind of generation per se. Each harvest. And literally, you know, it's much more difficult. Even though wow. we know that cocoa varietals are different, it's much more difficult to sort of Tell the nuances of the subject. Yeah, to actually sort of say this is just this bean varietal, this is just that bean varietal. The genetics just make it a little bit more So it isn't as standardised as other plants, like say per se, an F1 zucchini, that's, you know, whatever way, it's yeah. going to be pretty standardised. We know, we grow this type of tomato and this variety and this is what always works for us. Whereas with cacao, you know, which is the, the source of chocolate, it's going to be, there's going to be slight nuances with each season. So the, with good cacao, there'll be slight nuances, but bizarrely, because they've now created clones, so things like CCN51 or CC71, those actually, I think they can basically get always having the same. I mean, the, the, they've got the most awful flavor profiles, whatever anybody says. I mean, mass cacao, you know, grown because it's going to be bulk and it's supposedly going to be disease resistant. It's not really disease resistant. But anyway, that probably is all the same variety, but it tastes, you know, the flavor profile is just not not very appealing. Whereas great cacao has got lots of different flavors to it. So chocolate is the two main distinctions. There's commercial or mass-produced chocolate, which typically is focused on the satiation point or the bliss point, yeah. where, where it's just like you just want to eat more of it. And it's something you turn to... Scoff, not savor. To scoff, not savor, yeah. versus craft chocolate or speciality chocolate or bean-to-bar or artisanal chocolate, whatever way you want to call it, typically is where it's focused more on the terroir, the process, the degree of conch, the composition of it, how all these factors, even down to the tempering, down to the to, to the size of the bar, how that's going to just, the flavour is going to taste massively different. Because I know myself, I can have a chocolate that tastes of strawberry, one that tastes of pineapple, one that tastes like, and, and this is just chocolate and sugar. And that's it, or cacao, bean and yeah, sugar. Yeah, it's just, it is just literally, you know, it's just a, a fermented cocoa seed into a bean, which is then dried and then it's roasted. That will make a difference to it. Then it's ground and conched how you do that conching is basically sort of you know slurping it up and around so that it gets different oxygen through it and it all just makes a huge difference to flavor and it's just you know everything makes a huge difference and that's the great thing about food great food is all about the flavor and it comes from having great ingredients rather than commodity which and commodity chocolate's the perfect example where basically they don't care what the quality is because they're going to basically just add loads and loads and loads of sugar, salt, and fat. They're not going to care about how you roast it. In fact, they often roast it in a different way. They take the shells off the beans before they roast it. So it's called nib roasting. And you do that because you get a little bit more yield. So you get three to 5% more efficiency. But if you do that, you basically won't get the same flavor because you're not sort of roasting it in its natural shell, which is going to release more of it. So it, it, it's just one of those great examples to get people thinking again about flavor and about where their food comes from and about how it's being cared for and why you shouldn't be scoffing, why you should be savoring. So yeah, that's the big difference. Like it's certainly over the last kind of five or 10 years, uh, I'd say 10, even maybe it's a little longer, maybe it's 20 years, depending on where you come from. Coffee's gone through this renaissance where it's got kind of quite refined and very sophisticated at a mass scale where there's, you know, the speciality coffee and people are much more into where is it from and how to process it. And this has been like, and people are prepared to pay a premium for this. Obviously wine very much, you know, there's organic wines, there's natural wines, there's understandings of biodynamic wines. Even growing up in the 80s in Ireland, like you couldn't get wine in the off license. Dad used to kind of say it wasn't really widely available. 
Well, coffee, coffee certainly wasn't, you know, in the yeah, 80s. We you know, it, was, it was all jars and Nescafe and yeah. whatnot. So over, over the last kind of 20 years, it really has become widespread. And beer has gone through the same kind of process of there's craft beers, there's IPAs, there's, you know, it's gone through the same journey where people are getting more interested in the process and the flavour and the quality and there's more curiosity with it. And coffee is, or chocolate is kind of on the cusp of going through this. Like in your world, it's, it's deep in it because you are, you are Mr. Craft Chocolate UK. And I'm just wondering, like, like it hasn't quite gone through yeah. this arc yet. Is that process happening? Because there is this massive commercial chocolate. When you say chocolate, people go oh, 70%, 60%, 80 70% Madagascar. Oh, it's a very refined, you know, it's a fancy chocolate. But commercial chocolate is very different to yeah, what I you think, do. So, I, well, I mean, when we set up Cocoa Runners 10 years ago, we hoped that it would be doing what coffee has sort of done spectacularly and what, you know, wine has done and all that stuff and i think now looking back on it we've got the 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 misfortune of being able to sort of like try and say well why hasn't it quite gone that way and i think it hasn't yet gone that way i think it will go that way but i think it's for a number of different reasons i think one thing if you just compare it to coffee coffee is very social um and you know if you have coffee like we had some coffee before you know you go out if you want to meet somebody you go to a coffee store and I think that social aspect really helps. Like if you want to be cool and trendy, you definitely go to the happy pair rather than to X, Y, Z, whatever. And um, whereas chocolate is very different, you know, most people eat chocolate in the middle of the afternoon as a pick me up or as a reward and they get it out of a vending machine and they have it at their desk and it's a guilty secret. You don't boast about having had, you know, a mass market, whatever, Twix, Rolo, whatever. You know, they, they try and make it a bit more social, but you don't really, it's a sort of, solitary almost a guilty something which you're almost ashamed of so it doesn't sort of quite have that social angle to it and i think the second thing is related to that as well is let's take beer if you want to prove that you're really cool you go to the pub and you don't order you know the same beer that your parents would have had you have some sort of like punk ipa xyz and that proves that you're super cool and it's a relatively simple upgrade so back to your point about instant you know most of the people who had instant have coffee, a, like instant, instant coffee, coffee yeah. instant coffee. They haven't really changed the way they drink their coffee or when they drink it. They've just changed what they're drinking. So they've got like a French press or they've got a cafetiere or they've got like an aero press or something. And then they'll be moving up to your sorts of beans. So I think it's the upgrade habit, which really helps. And then I think, you know, back onto the distinction between the other two, I think most of these other craft products have got what I sort of call the barista effect. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if you go into a coffee store, the barista will be able to tell you exactly why these beans are so amazing, just as you were sort of describing how chocolate's so amazing. They can sort of say, these beans come from that. This is the wash method, the fermentation that they've used. This is how we roasted it. And by osmosis, you almost sort of pick it up and you appreciate what the flavor's about. And they'll tell you what to look for. Whereas if you just buy a bar off the shelf... Yeah, sure, they'll have some wording on the packaging, maybe sort of saying, well, it comes from Peru. You know, just as Paddington gets lost in Peru, you need to know a bit more. Right? You need to know where the farm is, at least. But you also, you know, it helps to have somebody say, you know, this is what you should be looking out for. And this is how you should be doing it. So I really hope Craft Chocolate gets there. But I think one of the challenges is we need an occasion. So an occasion I, to celebrate craft chocolate. Well, so we, the wine thing is really, really interesting. So a long, long, long time ago, when I was in Australia, I met this amazing guy called Len Evans. And he is this extraordinary Welshman who was running the Australian Wine Bureau in the early 70s. And he is, he, he basically 
is one of the reasons why possibly we drink so much Australian wine in the UK. Because if you go back, you know, 50, 60 years or a bit more, 70 years ago, we didn't drink that much wine in the UK or in Ireland or anywhere else. And part of the reason for that is that the national drink we have is beer. And if you want beer, you go to the pub, right? And um, that started to change when we got package holidays. Because package holidays meant that we could go to France, and we could go to Spain, and we could go to Italy and Portugal and everywhere else like that, where we discovered this amazing red and this white and this pink stuff, which we really enjoyed drinking. And so Len Evans had these two extraordinarily smart observations. So the first thing was, to Australian winemakers, was skate to the park, figure out where to sell it. Don't try selling it in supermarkets yet. Actually go to the pubs, sell it there, because that's where Brits drink. But his second bit of genius was to understand how Brits drink. And I, I presume it's the same here too, which is that, you know, when you go to the pub, you don't necessarily have food. In fact, in England, you know, the main food is like, you know, a packet of crisps. Whereas if you drink food and you drink white, so if you drink wine in Italy or France or Spain or Portugal, you generally have it with your food and it's designed to be had with food. And it's very different. So he said, redesign the wines. So before then, Australian wine was very much modeled on French wine. So, you know, it was, and it was even had the names. It's sort of called the same sort of things like claret. But he said, design it so that it's quaffable and you can basically drink it. Quaffable. Quaffable. What a word. It's a great word. So you can have it with a bag of crisps. So he basically figured out where the occasion is and what the opportunity is. And the thing about craft chocolate is that's what it needs because we're not an alternative to a Mars bar or a Snickers. You're not no. going to basically get your sugar rush from us. Even I noticed how I consume, like, uh, like I'll buy fancy bars of chocolate. You know, they're 10 or a bar, so they're expensive or 15 quid a bar sometimes. But like I savor them. You save and a it. bar could last me a week. And, and when do you have it? I, I typically will have it. I could have it at 11 o'clock in the morning. Go, yep. ah, it's time for a little a bit just to say A moment just almost like in a weird way, it's almost like a moment of meditation, a moment to stop and appreciate the subtle aromas and kind of complexity of this little, small, little or beautiful piece. Uh, yeah, reward too. Yeah, but it'll often be, yeah, often after And you share too. it a bit? A little yeah. bit with those who appreciate it. There you go. I, I can be a bit But what about stingy. after a meal? Yeah, after a meal, yeah. If there's, if there's people over, like if I have four or five bars in my bag, I'll take it, them all out and we'll all have a little taste in time and it's, it's great fun. So we did a survey of the Coco Runners sort of, you know, subscriber base and we discovered that about 70% plus of the people who enjoy our craft chocolate actually have it after dinner. Not only after dinner, but that's, that's, that's one of their primary occasions. If you compare that with how people consume mass-produced chocolate, the main time is mid-afternoon and a little bit of it before lunch. And it's basically that sort of, I'm feeling peckish, I need a bit of a, you know, a sugar rush. And it's, it's very different how people do it. So that's what I meant by trying to get people in the habit. So for us, the great thing is to basically finish a meal with some chocolate. Mm. And it also solves the second stomach problem. So this goes back to where your taste receptors are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've had this one before. So the, one of the strange things is, you know how basically you finished a great meal and you think, I can't eat anymore. And then suddenly somebody wheels out, like you did to me, that carrot cake. And suddenly, okay, I've actually got a little bit more room. I've got that second stomach. Technically, that is actually true. You do suddenly develop a second stomach. Because what happens is the very sight of something sweet, which you expect to be sweet, your stomach also has taste receptors for sweetness. And it says, I want some of that. And it will start your um, gastric juices, for want of a better word, 
pumping it up a bit more. And so basically you'll create a bit of more room quickly. <laughs> like squish it over there. And yeah, just, just give me a bit of room. And we've actually got on the website, there's actually sort of these great um, scans, an MRI, which they did live on Japanese TV, showing how basically people who were shown even though they thought they were full, some chocolate cake at the end of a meal, they literally create room in their upper intestine to eat a bit more. But chocolate's ideal for this because you don't, you basically, you don't want to have too much. So you want to have something which you can savor and satisfy your stomach and you will digest a bit better as well. And you'll have and a very social experience. And it enhances your digestion. And it enhances your digestion. So there you go. That's, that's the reason why you should always end your meal with some chocolate. Beautiful. It enhances digestion. Yeah, I love and, that. And okay, so, so, okay, so we've got like craft chocolate, yeah. We've, we've got to go back up there and talk about what are the, because we've got to talk about what are the problems with commercial chocolate, yeah. because commercial chocolate has a big shadow that I've only recently become aware of. Like it was really, we ended up, at, like Stephen's been obviously into chocolate for years and we went to your chocolate tasting and I was blown away. Like I just couldn't believe how much I learned about food, about taste, about flavour and about chocolate's dark secrets which you don't I the never knew side. of like we, we've had we've sold Belgian chocolate in the cafe and my wife is Belgian and, and I'm kind of always you know there was always these ideas that Belgian chocolate is good but I'd love to know a little bit more about chocolate's dark shadow and why the importance of yeah. supporting craft chocolate and why it's a better you know it's a better bet for the planet as well as yeah, no, taste wise it, that, 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 I mean, or flavour wise yeah well it, so first of all it's much better for you because it doesn't have all the junk and other stuff into it, which we'll go into in a minute. So it doesn't have all the preservatives, all the emulsifiers. You know, whenever you buy a bar of chocolate, the most important thing to do is look at the ingredients. And basically, if you see stuff that you don't have in your kitchen or that isn't in any Happy Pair product, you know, just basically just leave it. So if you've got like emulsifiers that you've never heard of, be really skeptical. Now, what is an emulsifier? Because everyone listening might know what the actual okay. emulsifier is. So the, the simple way to think about an emulsifier is, you know, when you mix a salad dressing, yeah. it rapidly separates. But if you add a bit of mustard to it, you can sort of like get the oil and the vinegar to stick together. That's an emulsifier. So you're technically you're binding two things which don't want to stick together. Yeah. And it's often used in cooking. And there are lots of really good emulsifiers. So like, you know, mustard's one, eggs another. Arguably sunflower lesser thin and soil lesser thin. I'm saying arguably because there'll be some people who are going to scream and shout at this. But they're, they're, they're okay. There are lots of other emulsifiers though which are used in ultra-processed food because basically the way that ultra-processed food works is you take the cheapest possible ingredients. You do all sorts of wonderful bits of chemical manipulation. So you sort of break them all apart and then you need to glue them back together again. And that's when you use emulsifiers. And there mm -hmm. is now more and more evidence that some of these emulsifiers which are being used are really not very good for your gut. So I think you're going to have you know, Tim Spector on, who's a great gut expert fairly soon. He'll talk to you more about it. But fundamentally, there are lots of man-made emulsifiers now, technical emulsifiers, which are really not very good for you. Wow. Which will just strip your gut out. And it's sort of like taking, you know, a course of antibiotics in terms of the damage it does to your gut microbiome. So you really want to be careful. And, you know, mass-produced chocolate uses a lot of emulsifiers. And it uses it for weird reasons, which is actually the first patent for, I think, soy lecithin in the UK was for chocolate because it stops the machines gumming up. And then people also discover that it actually helps in roving the chocolate too. But in general... Outside of sunflower lecithin, be a bit skeptical about emulsifiers in chocolate. They're not a good thing. And there are lots of chocolate makers who even sort of, you know, don't want that sort of emulsifiers in it. But let's go back mm. to the dark secret. Because the, the amazing thing about chocolate is that it really wasn't very big on the scene until the Swiss figured out how to make chocolate bars, which were smooth, lint, and then chocolate bars, which had milk in them. So, they're, you know, even more delicious and lovely. 
um, back in the turn of the century. And that's really when chocolate sort of took off. Before then, it was a very small crop. I mean, we all sort of like to pretend that we were up there with tea and up there with coffee, but we weren't really. I mean, it was, you know, it, it wasn't massively consumed in Europe um, until the late 19th century. But then what happened is that once people realized how brilliant it is as a vector for other flavors, that's when it really started to move. But the problem is that at the same time, chocolate is very prone to disease and it's also backbreaking to grow. So chocolate sort of hits um, Europe late 19th century. A lot of it is actually coming from a small island off the coast of West Africa called San Tome, which is a principality of Portugal. And they couldn't get anybody to uh, work easily in San Tome. So even though everybody's abolished slavery, they're basically using indentured labor. And what happens to... What does indentured labor mean? Slavery. It's a, okay, yeah, it's yeah. a fancy way of basically <laughs> saying slavery. fancy indentured. It, it, yeah, it's basically a weasel word for saying that you basically got people using slave labor. And so late 19th century, almost all the... I mean, a lot of the chocolate being consumed in Europe by you know all these very ethical companies like Cadbury's um, is coming from these slave labor plantations in San Tome. There's some amazing journalists. And even more amazingly, the suffragettes and the suffragists, so the people who give women the vote, get behind this and organize a boycott. And this is when chocolate moves to West Africa. But the supply chains, lo and behold, become incredibly complicated and convoluted. So most of the times when you buy a bar of chocolate, even the maker doesn't really know where the beans are coming from. So you don't really know what labor conditions are like when it comes from. And there's still huge problems in the chocolate supply chain with labor. So back in the 1990s, the BBC did some amazing work where they showed that, you know, lots of the chocolate in West Africa was unfortunately being grown by kids um, who'd been sold into slavery. And the reason for this is that, you know, the, the, the World Bank, the UN, everybody else believes that you need for a family to live on, a man and a woman need to be earning two and a half to three dollars a day to basically be able to live. The problem is, is the average cocoa farmer in West Africa gets paid less than 80 cents a day if they're male and less than 30 cents a day if they're female. So there's no way they can afford to send their kids to school. And if it gets even more desperate, there were cases of them selling their children basically to try and help them or basically because that was the only way they could live. Um, and you had these terrible examples of child slave labor. And it still goes on. There is still lots of, you know, kids working in conditions which you would not find acceptable. And it's because we don't pay enough for the chocolate. And what, what happens with chocolate as we go through the 19th, as we go through the 20th century is even though demand for it just keeps going up, because there's a very small number of people who buy it, so like 80, 90% of the world's chocolate, um, 70% of the world's chocolate comes from two countries, Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana. Of that, 80-90% of it's bought by less than a dozen companies. And they can set the price for it. It's very difficult to sort of distinguish between different chocolates because it's just a commodity. And so even though the demand's going up, the price that people are paying for it is going down and down and down. And so they don't get paid enough, so they basically can't send their kids to school. And it gets even more dangerous than this because the other side which happens to chocolate is that the way to grow more chocolate, if it's your main cash crop, is you cut down the rainforest and you plant clones of cacao. So if you go back and you look at, you know, pictures of, or if you look at rainforest canopy cover 
for Ghana and the Cote d'Ivoire, which is where most chocolate comes from, it used to be 60% plus virgin rainforest. By 1990, it's below 30%. And now it's two or three percent at worst, you know, at best. And this is cut down due to chocolate production. Chocolate is definitely one of the big reasons why it's been cut down. Because basically, if you want to, if you want to basically grow more of it, and also if you want to sort of put a bit of nitrogen back in the soil, you can do it by just burning down the forest. Wow. And 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 so you have these extraordinary situations. And I'm going to get the exact numbers wrong, but basically you've got deforestation on the one hand, and then you've got the other problem, which is you've really dramatically changed how the rainfall comes. So it used to be that you'd get, you know, in West Africa, I don't know, 80 to 90 inches of rain a year, but it would be spread pretty evenly. Whereas now you only get 60 to 70, but you get it really concentrated like a couple of weeks through the year. Mm. And this all then has one more big problem, which is that, you know, we all get very worried about the amount of sort of water used to grow almonds or to grow even avocados. But they're, neither of them are anything like as water-hungry as cacao because it's a rainforest crop. And to grow effectively one bar of chocolate requires about one and a half to 2,000 litres of water. One and a half wow. to 2,000? Yeah. So to put this in context, an avocado is about 300. And like, I, I'm going to get, I think, I, I think uh, like 50 grams worth of almonds is about 500 to 700. You're talking four times. Yeah, it's yeah. huge. But it, I mean, just, just to put, you know, what 1,500 litres of water is, a bathtub's about 70 litres of water. So it's a lot. So if you want to save the rainforest, if you want to basically stop deforestation, if you want to stop child save labour, have craft chocolate. So check where you know the beans come from, check what the ingredients are, check where it's been made because you then know. It will cost you more, but it's going to leave you more to savour it. That sometimes yeah. you're worth paying that bit extra because you actually appreciate it. And I think that's the subtle thing. Like, You'll eat the, less, but yeah. savour more. So, so yeah. how do, like, and this is this is the issue. Like I go to the supermarket and there's lint and there's Cadbury's and there's, you know, these are the, they're the bars which yeah. people recognise in Ireland and the UK and probably yeah. in lots of Europe. They're I, the same type of chocolate bars, you know, and it's, it's, it's confection really rather than chocolate bars. Um, where and it's taste you, rather than flavour. It tastes rather than flavour because it's fat and it's salt and it's got a little bit of sugar in it and it's and it's it really is a great combination of the bliss point, particularly the milk chocolates. Um, and where do you get craft chocolate? Like where it's does one really get it? hard to get craft chocolate. So that's why we set up Cocoa Runners. You know, that's because we are. You know, we How sell. How did you get into makers. that? Was something that I wanted to tap in. How did you get into craft chocolate? Because you you have quite a colourful background. Yeah. So it's so my background is Simon and I, my business my business co-founder. We've both done e-commerce for quite a while. So he'd done buy.com. And then back in the days, and this is really prehistoric, so 1999, I helped set up Amazon. So I set up Amazon software, video games, electronics, and toy stores. So I've been doing e-commerce in different manifestations quite a long time. But one of the, I'll get to the answer in a sec. So give no, me another quick story. I love so, a good story. So if you think about physical retail, the secret to why people generally buy in a store is because of location, 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 location. location. Yeah. The equivalent to the internet, bizarrely, is search. So if you think about how most people discover stuff on the internet or buy, they start by going to a search engine and typing in what they want. And in fact, for shopping now, increasingly, people bypass you know, Bing or Google, they go straight to Amazon. And that's because Amazon is brilliant at building out the catalogs. But it's very difficult to compete with that. And so Simon and I wanted to look for some categories of foods where we would also basically have what we sort of call the DJ effect. Now, for anyone in the audience who doesn't remember what DJs are, 
um, let me try and explain what this is. So I also did quite a lot in the music world. And, you know, I think that the best form of discovery. You said at Last a, FM. I was one of the early one guys the... in Last FM. Yeah. So, so, but, but I, so Last FM, music recommendations, and I love music discovery. But if you think about it, back in the day, at least my day, how did we discover music? Well, I would listen to the top 40. I'd listen to John Peel. And that was a great way of just discovering, you know, you basically have trusted advisors. So like, you know, if I want to buy great veg, you know, we were talking about earlier on, I don't know that much about vegetables. So I ask you, you are my trusted navigator. You're my trusted advisor. And I thought there would be a way to play e-commerce. Simon and I thought there would be a way to play e-commerce so that there would be the equivalent of John Peel and trusted navigators for uh, chocolate and for food. And I think there is an opportunity for this. I think, you know, lots of people are very willing to trust me and trust the team to basically send them four bars of chocolate. All their responsibility is to say, do they want dark? Do they want dark and milk? Or do they want milk or 100%? And they then have to trust us to pick the bars. And we promise never to repeat bars and all that sort of stuff. And they're trusting us just to basically be the DJ. Wow. The chocolate DJ. Chocolate DJs. That's the aim. But it, it, but it only works if people know what a DJ is. That's the problem. Ah, people would know I think most people know what a DJ is. Now we're saying that we're 43 I, going I, on 44 yeah, I, I, years I'm so. like 59. So I, I'm not convinced that, you know, and, and it's very difficult because Last FM basically created playlists. And so now, you know, the problem is that playlists were originally something which you were supposed to create. So you were supposed to be DJs for other people. But now it's all been automated. So we need to go back and have a bit of human, you know, touch a human discovery on that i think wow it's gas it's amazing very cool i love it i really love is. it i see people starting to arrive for a chocolate tasting which is quite exciting yeah no what well, we yeah. should well, we, so, could, we could, should could, do a chocolate tasting with you uh, yeah, I, I would love to we've done them with with you before because i th that's the whole fun of it because it's the enthusiasm and it's back to the sharing it's what you were sort of saying if you've got five chocolate bars that's the secret it's to great food. Such, it's civilization. And it's Getting the sharing and the, the what do you taste? Can you taste that? And what's the, you know, this little thing. And I think it's so much fun. And then you could basically give the story about the farmers because that's the other great thing is that we can tell you, you know, we don't, we never sell a bar unless we know where the beans come from, down to the level of the farm. And we try and basically talk to the farmers as much as we can. We want to be doing more of that. But we also only sell a bar if we've directly either met with and I include Skype and I include Zoom on this too, the, the, the maker. And we've seen around their factory and we know that they're not using, I'm afraid, no, no insult to your wife. I know she's Belgium, but they're not using the equivalent of chicken nuggets for chocolate, which is what the Belgians invented. That's the reason why we all know about Belgian chocolate, because they invented chicken nuggets for chocolate. What do you mean by that? What is chicken nuggets for chocolate? Well, actually, probably, hamburger is probably the better example. Yeah. So before McDonald's, I mean, the great genius of McDonald's was basically turning anybody into a, into a hamburger chef. They basically compartmentalized everything so that anybody could follow those instructions. And the great genius of the Belgians in chocolate is that Calibo, back in the 1920s, invented a way to basically ship chocolate in bulk, in liquid couverture form. And so before then, most people who were selling chocolate actually made their own bars and made their own, you know, chocolate to put in pastries or anything else like that. But since the 1920s and really booming in the 1950s and 60s, most people actually don't make chocolate themselves anymore. So most of the chocolate bars that you buy, which has sort of got all these fancy wrappers, actually all that the people have done is they bought in this as another ingredient, remolded, remelted it, and just sell it. So they haven't added anything to it? They're or... not doing what Steve is doing. They're not, they're not basically putting their magic. It's a bit like going, to, if, like if we went to your restaurant 
And we basically discover that out of the back, someone's basically got a bunch of microwave meals and just heating them up and pouring them into the yeah, yeah. We'd be pretty upset. Yeah, yeah. That's or, effectively what's happening when you buy chocolate bars. Or it's kind of like bars. buying vodka from something from someone else yeah. and then pouring it into different into different bottles and going, "Here's my new vodka that yeah, I made." Yeah, it's exactly that. And it, having it, a good story around it, putting an L. And that's what most chocolate is. That's what most chocolate is. I'm afraid. Yeah. And and who originates it? You know, who is the chocolate master then? Who? Well, that's the reason why if you buy any supermarket chocolate, try and figure out where it's made. It's got an exemption under EU legislation that you don't have to say where it's made because they can't define it. Is it where the couverture is being processed or is it where the bar's being molded and put in a nice pack? And the couverture is made in bulk in in, no, the, yeah. in the Ivory Coast or Ghana or is Increasingly, it Increasingly, it's it's being made out there. It's being processed out there. But actually a lot of it has been made in Europe. And just, just to clarify um, words here, couverture is... Is French the for cover, so it's like chocolate coming. Now, oh, sorry, people listening aren't chocolate experts. You're you've no, been a chocolate a for ten term. years, and you have a chocolate business. So couverture, I'm not even 100 so sure what it is. It's it's bulk chocolate. Yeah, and and actually, you know, when you're cooking as a chef, that's what you should use. But you know, because you're not going to want to grind your own chocolate. Some people will, but 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 it, it that's the term we use for it. And actually, so if you look at, for example, most supermarket chocolates, you will discover that they have made in Italy. You know, and, and and or some of them are made in Germany and that sort of stuff, and that's because that's where the factory has processed them and put them in nice packaging. No. But a lot of them are owned by, but but you know, and and it used to be that that's what Belgium was really good at and what Holland was really good at, but now there are lots of other countries which are doing it too. Uh, it's a bit like the way Ireland is one of the world's biggest banana producers, like literally really? because Fife's imports bananas green and then they ripen them in Ireland and send them around or whatever. So, it's, so it's like it's, it's one of the world's biggest banana producers and like you, there's no one in Ireland can actually grow a banana because it's not the climate for it but it's it sounds like it's a similar analogy. So, so what's that. happening here is that presumably with bananas it's because it's that weird thing that if you add a chemical to it that turns them from being green to, to yeah, yellow. To I think it's ethanol is not added to it. And, yeah. I, and I don't know if it's added here or whatnot but I know I, I believe that Ireland is certainly Fives are one of the biggest bananas producers and it's an Irish company so Ireland is you know the, the idea of being a banana producer they should yeah. be growers I mean that's the thing yeah, yeah. Yeah. anyway a distinction here but um, okay it, it, tell us about chocolate tastings because that's one thing which Cacao Runners does and, yeah, which so is we, amazing we love doing tastings because experiences, experiences. and you yeah. do them online experiences. you do them remotely from all over the world we do and, and we're going to do one with you whether you like it or yeah, not yeah I know so I absolutely do there's Linda and Debbie and Arnie are here for but it no, we should do we should do an online one with you yeah, guys absolutely. too because you guys are brilliant okay well let's do one let's do one we'll organise it we will let you know the listener that we are going to run a uh, remote digital chocolate tasting where you're going to be the chocolate DJs you're going to choose the chocolates yeah, which cool. we're going to do and you'll sign up you'll sign up for it you'll have to pay for the chocolate you, you get to delivered to your chocolate. home and then there'll be kind of a live where you'll do yep. a tasting session and we'll record it so that if you can't come to it you can come to it later we've done them with Tim Spector we've done them with James Hoffman we've done them with lots of people and look they're, they're a great way of because you know what we were talking about before with all these fancy words all this other stuff actually those words really do help and once you've got the vocab, it's much more fun to do it. But you'll also get the stories behind it. And once you've learned how to savour, you will never want to go back to scoffing. Savour, not scoff. I love it. The analogy for life, not just for chocolate. Yeah, I, well, it is. It is. It is. It is definitely, you know, it's, it's, it's the way to enjoy it. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of, you know, what, what you should be doing. Take your time. Be mindful. Think about what's happening and you'll enjoy it and you'll appreciate it much, much more. Beautiful, beautiful. So craft chocolate, cacao runners. If anyone wants to to learn more about it, cacao runners is one of the biggest distributors of craft chocolate in the UK. I think it's the biggest. Yep. Um, and more, in the world. More, in, the world in the world. In the world. We ship everywhere. Oh we my ship god, everywhere. cacao runners. 
I'm going to say that again now. Kaironis is the biggest distributor of craft chocolate in the world. Woo! Yes, more chocolate Round adventures. More chocolate adventures from Kaironis than Kaironis than anyone else. Wow. So, so yeah, come and get your adventures from us. But yeah, we literally adventures. do. We, we, I think we import from like. Last time I looked at it, it was something like. Is it 80 countries? And we you have a like remarkable catalogue. As someone that yeah. adores chocolate, like I could spend years working my way through your catalogue. Yeah, no, it's actually, it's 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 becoming almost unmanageable. It's not, we're going to definitely figure out how to get, but it's gone to another sort of level now. Because I think we're, we're now on like sort of, I think we've now tasted like almost 10,000 bars. Wow. And we've got about one and a half thousand on the website. And it's and the, and the great thing is there are more and more chocolate makers appearing now. So that's sort of putting, that's putting the, the onus on us to... And who in your team is the master chocolate taster? We're all master chocolate makers. And we, uh, ch chocolate chocolate tasters. tasters. And we basically, what we actually want to do is train more people than how to taste. I'd uh, say you'd have a fair few applicants for that job. But, it, it, but once you've learned how to do it, you can apply it to everything else. I mean, mm. that's the great thing. I think once you've learned how to savour in any one great food, you look for the same thing. Balance, length, intensity, complexity. Chocolate's brilliant at showing it to you. But once you've got that, you're never going to go back to having, you know... Well, I'm, I'm going to go get my daughter now who she's, she has a young, like six-year-old, when I was having a bath, she'd come in and she'd go, orange, lavender, mint, and I think it might be basil. Like she's always had this incredible nose for flavour. And so, articulacy. And arti she, could, she could just distinguish. I, I, I gave her a coffee this morning, it was a decaf coffee, and she said, that's not oat milk. Is that hazelnut? And it's very sweet. Is that rice as well? Like, and it was like, how the heck did you pull? You know, like where you're kind of going. That's very impressive, flavor-wise. So, but it, but it's it's like the swimming. It's it's. I think that it's like you know, like running. You just have to do. Whereas swimming, if you get taught a bit of technique, you're just going to enjoy it and do more and more. Nice of it. one. So, so people who want to learn more chocolate technique, talk to cacao runners. Check them out online and subscribe to the chocolate DJ. It's a great idea because you'll just literally get a bar. You know, four bars a month. You get to try them, taste them, enjoy them, and just. Savor them. And we're going to do a happy pair one. We're definitely so, going to do a happy yeah, pair yeah, one. Yeah. So watch this space. Thank you so much. Spencer, pleasure. you're wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so, so much, much yeah, guys. Yeah, really, really yeah, enjoyed that. Thank you so much. Really, that yeah. was brilliant. Thank you thank so, you, thank so you, thank much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. That was brilliant. That was amazing. You guys are so good at it. Really, really oh. good. Oh. No, you're just fantastic. And I am going to go running. But lovely distinction between taste and flavour, because that's one that...